Welcome to NASA Edge, an inside and outside look at all things NASA. Joining us today is Pat Troutman, who I like to call the Lunar Architecture Guru at NASA Langley Research Center. How you doing, Pat? Very good, Chris. Pat, what goes into designing an architecture for the moon? Well, an architecture is more than just the, uh, the chess pieces on the board. It's the board and the rules of the board and how you play the game. So it's uh, meeting uh, stakeholders' expectations. In this case, it's the American people, it's the Congress, it's the president, um, and making sure that we're achieving the goals and objectives that they want to do. Once we've decided on what the goals and objectives are, and number one goal right now is get to the moon in 2024, uh, we have to figure out a way now to get the chess pieces uh, that will enable that uh, to happen. Uh, so the first part there is, even before we start building, we have to figure out how we're gonna partner, how we're gonna do it. So we just recently spent six months working a procurement of the new human landing system. And they announced uh, three partners uh, a week before last. And we're very excited now to move on to that next phase is where we start actually designing the hardware in earnest based upon our requirements on how we get to, uh, to the moon. And it's, it's not just physics like repeating Apollo. We have a new set of players. We have a new set of capabilities. We, we have commercial launches. We, we, have, we have things we didn't have back in the 60s. And uh, we want to go to the moon, but go to the moon to stay and do it sustainably. So we're architecting the lunar campaign a little bit differently, where we have reusable systems and eventually we can take advantage of the researchers on the moon. So when that first woman sets foot on the lunar surface uh, in 2024, what are we expecting to have on the surface? So we, we have a we have a commercial, a commercial lunar payload service, CLIPS is what we call it for short. And we're expecting actually to have reconnaissance robots there before the crew get there. So uh, when the crew sets down there, when, when that first woman steps off the lander, she might be greeted by a robot. She might be greeted by a set of pre-in-placed tools for them to do their missions, so they don't have to carry them from the Earth. She might get greeted by an unpressurized rover. Think of an electric car in the 21st century on the moon. There's a lot of possibilities of what she could be greeted by. What's really interesting is not what she could be greeted by, but where she's going to get greeted by these things. Instead of going to probably the easiest place we go to, which is like we did in Apollo, which was the equator, we're going to the lunar south pole. The lunar south pole is important for a myriad of reasons. Number one, it's uh, sort of like the high ground. It's at a point where there's sunlight almost 80% of the year. Sunlight is another version of in situ resource utilization. It's a natural resource we can take advantage of to make our stay there easier and more affordable. Also located in the same place are potentially vast deposits of water ice that we may be able to mine and extract uh, water from, which turns into rocket propellant and uh, water and of course uh, air to breathe. So the wear is really exciting because it's, it's, it's like beachfront property on the moon and uh, that's where we want to go. That's where we want to build Artemis Space Camp. Now, what kind of team does it take when designing this lunar architecture uh, obviously you have to work with engineers, you have to work with scientists, I'm sure you have to work with many people across the agency. Uh, what kind of uh, skill sets are needed to develop a lunar architecture? Well, that is a really good question because it's not just engineering. Um, I, I like to say that the engineering part is the easiest part of it. Uh, it's the budgets, it's the politics, it's the uh, uh, legalese of uh, claiming a space on a planet that's not Earth. They just recently had something called the Artemis Accords, which lays the groundwork for some of the legal aspects of it. I'm not a lawyer. I can't understand it. It's open to interpretation rather than the laws of physics. So that, to me, is very challenging. 
Um, we have to design this system in such a way that it fits into a, a budget slice. Uh, we can't just expect to get everything we need all at once, so we have to phase the development of the, uh, the lunar systems and, and the launch vehicles such that we can afford it as we go. And we design it in such a way that uh, it, uh, it is still affordable uh, 10 years after we first uh, landed that first woman on the moon. And then, of course, uh, I can imagine you know, when we get back to the lunar surface in 2024, then you have to think about sustainable exploration. What's that architecture going to look like 10, 15, 20 years uh, beyond that point? And then to make it things even more challenging, I'm sure you're, you're working on Mars as well. Yeah, and what's interesting is we're sort of tying the two together now. Um, our strategy on the moon is that we're going to go there. We're going to lay claim to the high ground, to the, the, the south pole of the moon. Uh, we're also going there to practice what we need to practice for going to Mars. Uh, so the high priority of what we're going to do on the moon initially is going to be surface exploration as we would do on the surface of Mars. So our first mission to Mars, we're talking about sending basically just two crew to the surface in a mobile habitat, a pressurized rover, for about 30 days, and their job will be to look for signs of extant life and other science objectives. Uh, it's sort of like a touch and go to prove we can do it, but also to get to the point where we can establish primary capabilities that can be used to build bigger and better things. That same strategy, we're working backwards to the moon. So the initial lunar missions are first just the testing of the lander system. So that first mission, may not be an incredible feat. It might be a few days, it might be uh, a touch and go, it might be a slight amount of EVAs, but that's the test the transportation system because we're not trying to do it all at once. This is, this is, this is the marathon, okay? We're, we're going for long and we're not doing a sprint there. So the next mission, that might be when the uh, unpressurized rover there, and that's gonna expand the range, expand the stay capability, uh, allow us to explore and either uh, change sensors on some of those robotic systems, uh, or take that unpressurized rover to places where the robots couldn't go. Uh, and we'll learn from that experience. We'll gradually expand our base and distance on the lunar surface and uh, duration on the lunar surface. So your architecture is, is always evolving. It's, it's a work in progress. You don't get to a point where you kind of just set the limit and say, okay, this is our architecture, we're going with it. You're making tweaks along the way. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're under no uh, 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 preset uh, uh, fantasy that uh, what we design today is what we'll actually do 15 years from now. Uh, we design it to evolve based upon evolving uh, uh, discoveries. Uh, you know, if we find that the, uh, the water deposits are too hard to mine or require more energy, we will adjust our strategy to accommodate that. If we find that the rest of the world really wants to build a lunar village there and, and, and they want to build a, that next outpost to humanity, well, maybe Mars might get put off a little bit. Right now, our strategy is go to the moon, test for Mars, lay a foundation so that other people can explore the moon and we can do it, but not take all our resources so we can take those resources and focus them off to Mars as the next step. And then we go do the same thing at Mars where we lay a foundation of capabilities and then we go back and build upon that foundation. Now, I know you have a, a pretty challenging job in divine, de, de defining this architecture. Do you ever, you know, uh, you're, you're sleeping at night, you wake up and you have an epiphany and you, and you, you come up with something and say, look, I found a solution to a, a certain challenge of this architecture. Does it, does it drive you crazy sometimes at night? It does, it's, it, but it's, it's mostly in the shower in the morning. That's the <laughs> relaxing time where you're thinking your mind is clear and those, those things come to me. Um, you know, just like the other day, uh, part of the lunar base is something we call the, the, this, this pressurized rover. 
but we also want to put down what we call a kilopower nuclear power plant. Uh, this is 10 kilowatts of power because even though there's abundant sunshine at the lunar south pole, there are periods where there are not. And it's sort of like you would have a constant source and then surges. So they've been changing these things separately. And then I thought, why don't we just put the kilopower unit on the back of the, uh, of the rover and land them together. And then the rover can roll off the lander and take the nuclear power unit to where it needs to be. And the people don't have to be involved. It just sort of drops off and goes off. And these are the type of things you get to as you progress through an architecture where you go step by step by step. And then you find out there's a, a step D and a step B and maybe they should go together. Uh, and so you're constantly evolving those. And right now we really don't know exactly what the landing system is going to look like because we just brought on the three contractors to do that. And those landing systems go all the way from three feet off the ground to 70 feet off the ground. So it greatly impacts on how you would build your lunar base and how you would deploy and, 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 and transport things. Well, Pat, that's why I call you the guru of the lunar architecture uh, and, and seeing your work over the past 10, 15 years, even you know, from the old days of Constellation to, uh, to Artemis, I mean, you are, you are the man when it comes to, to uh, defining a lunar architecture and we appreciate all the work that you do and keep having those, uh, th those great ideas uh, when you're taking showers in the morning. Well, you know, there's, there's hundreds of other people taking showers too, uh, not at the same time, in the same place, but the, we're all thinking. It's, it's a group effort to put this together. Uh, I like to think of myself as one of many orchestra leaders, but it's the beautiful music comes from the, the, the musicians themselves. Uh, so I'm just trying to make sure it sounds good when it all comes together. Uh, but uh, it, it is a, definitely a teamwork uh, effort uh, across NASA and across industry to make all this work. Well, well, you know, Pat, you have a great, uh, great shirt on there. I can't, I can't bust on your wardrobe. You know, Artemis, great program. We're looking forward to uh, that first woman landing on the lunar surface in 2024. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure. You're watching NASA Edge, an inside and outside look at all things NASA.